Welcome to FYI, the four-year innovation podcast. This show offers an intellectual discussion on technologically enabled disruption, because investing in innovation starts with understanding it. To learn more, visit arc-invest.com. Arc Invest is a registered investment advisor focused on investing in disruptive innovation. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. It does not constitute either explicitly or implicitly any provision of services or products by ARC. All statements made regarding companies or securities are strictly beliefs and points of view held by ARC or podcast guests and are not endorsements or recommendations by ARC to buy, sell, or hold any security. Clients of ARC Investment Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Welcome to FYI, the For Your Innovation podcast. Today, we're going to be talking to Andrew and Saik. From Verve Therapeutics, Andrew is the CSO and CMO, and Saik is the co-founder and CEO. So by way of short background, although it's hard to give a short background to these two, um, Andrew is a cardiologist and scientist. He works at, or he worked at, uh, the Brigham and Women's Hospital. Andrew co-founded and was the chief scientific officer of Lindra Therapeutics, also was the chief scientific officer of Cocoon Biotech, and co-founder of Corner Therapeutics. Andrew's training is in internal medicine, um, which he did at the University of California, San Francisco, and then his cardiology training at the Brigham and Women's Hospital, and he completed his postdoctoral research training in drug discovery at MIT, and he holds an MD and a PhD from Columbia, and an MS in mathematics from New York University, and an AB in physics from Princeton. Sorry, that's a mouthful. Andrew, you let me know if I missed anything. Uh, Saik is also a cardiologist and scientist. He was the director of the Massachusetts General Hospital, Center for Genomic Medicine, director of the Cardiovascular Disease Initiative at the Broad Institute, and a professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. Saik holds a BA in history from the University of Pennsylvania, received his MD from Harvard Medical School, and completed his training in internal medicine and cardiology at MGH and postdoctoral research training in human genetics at Framingham Heart Study and the Broad. Uh, so welcome to the podcast, and we're so happy to have you on. Delighted to be on, Ali. Thank you so much. Great. So you can let me know if I missed anything, but um, we could probably go on for just an hour just about your backgrounds. So um, to pivot a little bit, just a, a really short intro to what Verve is. It's a biotech company that's bringing new approaches for cardiovascular disease, and we're transforming the way we think about chronic management for these conditions, so including even gene editing single-course treatments. So really excited to discuss all that is gene editing and cardio. Uh, so again, sorry, that was all a mouthful, but just wanted to give good context, and so now we can kind of dive in. Um, so wanted to give you, Andrew, and Sake an opportunity, if I missed anything or if there's something you want to add in terms of background, how you got to this point. Well, maybe I can start um, just to give you a sense of, um, you know, why we are uh, here um, in terms of trying to develop gene editing medicines for atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. Uh, both Andrew and I trained in cardiology. We care deeply about um, atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, which is the leading cause of death in the world. It's a heart attack. Um, and what we have uh, learned over the years um, is that if one's LDL cholesterol, the bad cholesterol, is very low, lifelong, it's really hard to get a heart attack. And our company is founded uh, on the idea that 
we can develop a one-and-done gene editing medicine uh, that would lower LDL cholesterol dramatically and do so for essentially a lifetime, durably do so, and as a way to treat treat heart attack. Um, and 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 this was a concept um, that we came up with back in 2016. Uh, took a couple of years to develop that idea. In 18, we founded the company, and then over the last four years, have really worked uh, to develop proof of concept now in monkeys that this this is going to work. That a one-time treatment permanent lowering of LDL cholesterol as a way to treat heart attack. And so um, excited to share with you uh, that, that story and the progress. Great. Andrew, anything to, to add? No, I, I often say, um, you know, being the CSO at Verve is the perfect job for me because, you know, I am a cardiologist at my heart. You know, my, my background and, and experience is really in translating new therapies and I think as Sake said, the, the central challenge here, we, we knew that the biology was there. The central challenge was, could we make it work? And that's that's a problem that, um, you know, it's, it's the kind of problem I, I like to solve. So um, it's been a, a, a lot of fun working with Sake the last three years on on tackling that, that uh, big vision. And Sake, I, I read an article that really actually moved me um, about a personal tragedy that you had with cardiovascular disease and your brother. So don't want to put you on the spot, but if appropriate and if you feel comfortable, um, maybe if you wouldn't mind sharing. I, I think you had already um, been a cardiologist at this time, but I can imagine it sort of further ignited your passion um, to find real potential cures and maybe even you know change the way that we're treating cardiovascular diseases in general. Um, yeah, um, Ali. Yeah, the, the 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 story you're referring to is is that of my brother. Um, so you know, we have a strong family history of coronary heart disease, of heart attack, uh, premature heart attack, and um, so um, you know, my brother and I kind of knew that. Um, you know, we had come to this country back in 1980 as immigrants. Um, my father was already here. Um, he grew up in Pittsburgh. Um, I was uh, on staff as a cardiologist at Mass General Hospital. Um, my brother uh, living in Pittsburgh um, with his wife and uh, my niece. And, um, you know, he'd gone for a run, uh, came back, uh, was, was dizzy, um, uh, and, and, uh, and, and ended up um, calling an ambulance. Uh, and then he passed out, uh, in, you know, in, in the house and uh, was resuscitated uh, by uh, the EMTs, um, uh, and, but taken to the hospital. Uh, turned out it was a blood clot in one of the heart arteries, um, so he had just suffered a heart attack. Um, that blood clot was treated, um, but um, he had actually suffered a fair amount of anoxic brain injury uh, during the resuscitation, um, prolonged at home, uh, and unfortunately died about 10 days into the hospital course. And, um, and, and that, that tragedy, um, so he was 42, um, you know, and I had been studying um, basically the genetic basis of heart attack uh, for the previous uh, you know, uh, 10 years or so, um, you know, really struck home that the problem that we were working on and the solution that we were looking to arrive at, um, you know, it, it really is is, a, uh, is even that much more important that we, um, that we, we tackle this. Um, and, um, and it really recommitted me to um, this issue and not just the issue of diagnosis and understanding why somebody's at risk, but more importantly, the idea that we should develop a new approach, a new way to treat, uh, to avert uh, such tragedies. And so 
Um, it was around that time, to be honest, that I kind of tried to think about not just the research we were doing, but you know, how can we translate that to, as, as Andrew said, to new, new treatments. Um, and it was right around that time also that the whole gene editing um, revolution was happening, right, in 2013, 14, with new, new, new discoveries. Uh, and, and it's, it's really uh, that confluence of events that uh, got us uh, over the subsequent three or four years uh, to this idea of developing a treatment so that uh, things like what happened to my brother don't, don't, don't happen. Very sorry to hear that, Seth, but um, it's amazing what you've done sort of post that and, and to really try and help patients. So maybe if we can move uh, to Verve specifically and talk about your sort of two programs that we, we know announced now, obviously PCSK9 is, is the first. Can we kind of talk about why you chose that as the, the first program and kind of the progress that we've seen so far? Yeah, and just taking a step back, um, uh, as I said, atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, and this is basically blood LDL clogging the heart arteries, um, is the leading cause of death worldwide. Um, and we know that, uh, as I said, lowering the LDL cholesterol as low as possible for as long as possible um, is the major uh, treatment um, to make sure uh, you don't have a, a, another heart attack if you've already suffered one. And so, um, and there are some treatments out there available to lower um, but all of those treatments follow the same model, which is uh, the chronic care model, the daily pills, the intermittent injections. And that model is broken. Um, and um, and what, what do I mean by that? Well, that model requires uh, a bunch of things, uh, adherence, access, um, and has lots of uh, uh, issues. Uh, and a very simple um, stat kind of will highlight this. You know, so if you take a 100 patients who suffer a heart attack today and ask a year from that time period, um, year from that heart attack, how many are still taking their cholesterol-lowering medications? How many are still on their cholesterol-lowering medicines? It's only about half. Um, and so that's all really due to the chronic care model. And what we want to do is completely change that and say, what if we had something that, you know, one-time treatment, dramatic and durable lowering of so that's really the concept. And so to actualize that concept, we had to say, what are the right targets? And then what's the right approach to do this one and done? The first target um, we've chosen is PCSK9. In fact, we had a basket of targets, four different targets we selected when the company started. And Ali, all those um, targets have the same profile. They are that um, there are humans walking around who naturally lack the gene, have the gene turned off, and have low LDL cholesterol and are protected from heart attack. So there's human genetic evidence. The targets also have human pharmacology evidence. So that means that there's, there's another modality that's been developed against that target, and it's been shown to work in people. Um, and the human genetics and human pharmacology is really the foundation for why we select it. And that's the reason we chose PCSK9. Then the next step is um, how can we turn off this target permanently? And, and our target organ here for this gene is the liver. We want to turn off the PCSK9 gene in the liver. Um, and the approach that we've, we've prioritized um, is base editing. Um, and we, we got to that after evaluating both standard 
CRISPR-Cas9, which is basically cutting DNA to turn off a gene, and also base editing, which is a, like a molecular pencil and eraser um, to basically change a single letter um, to turn off a gene. We compared both those approaches in cells, mice, and monkeys, and then, as I said, I prioritized um, the, the base editing approach. And maybe I'll let Andrew walk you through the preclinical data we've generated um, for um, our first product, Verb 101, which is an adenine base editor um, uh, and, and a guide RNA um, targeting that base editor to the PCSK9 gene packaged in the lipid nanoparticle. Andrew? Yeah. So the the first step is identifying, as, as Sake said, where in the PCSK9 gene you want to make a single base pair edit. And so we screened a large number of guide RNAs targeting PCSK9 to identify one that uh, is uh, unusually specific and is able to make a single base pair change uh, at the end of exon one in PCSK9. One base pair change of A to G will, in that splice donor at the end of exon one, will, will, will result in, in essentially no protein production of PCSK9. So we had identified those guides and then took them uh, into mice and then into, into non-human primates. And what we found is that with a single IV infusion of VERV 101 in non-human primates, um, we can, uh, uh, with, a, with essentially 100% fidelity, reach almost every liver cell, every hepatocyte, uh, and edit both copies of the PCSK9 gene that A to G change and, and turn off PCSK9 production. So we see 90% reductions in PCSK9 levels circulating in the blood just a week or two after we give VERF 101 in non-human primate. And those results now have been durable out in our earliest studies out to more than 15 months. Um, we've done a large follow-up study with the actual clinical candidate VERF 101 and uh, have durability data we presented last year at, uh, out to six months. Um, and that dur large durability study had um, 36 monkeys in it. It was a very robust um, uh, uh, study. And what we saw was very consistent uh, reductions, high level editing in the liver, uh, about 70% in the whole liver sample, which reflects the vast majority of hepatocytes, and a 90% reduction in PCSK9. The result of that was that we could lower LDL cholesterol by 60 to 70% uh, just two weeks after, after the one-time infusion, and it stayed down for the duration of the study so far. What's remarkable is, you know, this is um, like surgery without a scalpel. Um, you're literally able to go in, make a single spelling change in every liver cell and turn off a gene, a disease-causing gene. And... What you have then is basically permanent lowering of LDL cholesterol after that one intervention. There are other modalities, though, that can be used for PCSK9, right? So maybe it'd be helpful to talk about some of the other um, potential treatments that can be used. And of course, as you stressed and said, this is potentially a one and done. So that's kind of the biggest differentiator this this potential therapy has. Um, but just curious of how you think about the treatment paradigm for PCSK9 as it stands now. Yeah, so there are other treatment modalities. There's a monoclonal antibody that targets a circulating PCSK9 that's injected typically 
uh, twice a month. Um, there's also a, uh, a, a SIRNA uh, targeting PCSK9 that just got recently approved. Um, so uh, all, all and, and there's even other even other modalities, even an oral PCSK9 inhibitor that's being developed. All of these um, current and, um, and, and and treatments in development against PCSK9 follow the same model that I mentioned earlier, this chronic care model uh, requiring daily pills or repeat injections. Um, and that's the model, as I mentioned earlier, that's broken. Um, and, um, and, and as evidenced by the, that, that stat that I mentioned, despite all that's available, people are not on their medicines about a year after their first heart attack. And there's a consequence to that alley, which is instead of having the LDL come down and stay down as it's supposed to, uh, there's oscillation in the LDL over in the, in the patient's life course after their heart attack. And that lack of control over their life course um, leads to recurrent heart problems like a heart attack or a bypass surgery or even a stent or even a fatal event. Um, and that's really what we're trying to um, overcome. That's the unmet need, um, really to convert uh, the LDL care from that oscillation to just down and stays down. Um, and, and, and that's really what our, our product uh, will, will look to do. Um, heterozygous familial hypocholesterolemia is a, a fairly common disorder, but it's a very, it's a very morbid one. It's, it's one with a high morbidity and mortality. So uh, these are patients who have typically a mutation in the LDL receptor or one of a couple other genes that results in uh, elevated LDL cholesterol from birth. So these patients will uh, are accumulating cholesterol in their arteries, you know, all through their childhood and young adulthood, and then typically have heart attacks in their 30s, 40s, and 50s. So these these are, um, you know, we often think of kind of uh, uh, cholesterol as, as a common disorder and, you know, maybe something that you know, we, we can't do much about. But in fact, um, th this, the consequence, as Sake said, is, is that these people actually suffer clinical events that have a huge cost to, the, to themselves and to their families. And so that's really where we think that these kind of therapies can, can intervene in these, initially at least, in these high-risk patient populations uh, with a genetic disease where a one-time genetic therapy, a, a gene-editing therapy, gene-editing medicine, can provide a durable solution for them. Um, and then with sufficient data in those patient populations, that's when we can really think about going into broader, even broader indications. But it's important to know that that first indication of heterozygous familial hypercholesterolemia is still a pretty common disorder. So about a million people um, here in the US have this genetic condition that predisposes them to, to heart attacks and stroke. You know, I, I get asked a lot about sort of what what we think of as, as, you know, society changing and medicine changing. So more of an upstream approach versus a downstream approach. And I, I actually love the verb example of how we can think about healthcare from the upstream approach. So, you know, when we talk about your model as the three phases, so maybe that's something we can talk about, just how you see it sort of in a phase approach where, you know, first we're tackling X group of people and, and then following to make it an upstream. This is what you're talking about, Andrew, right? So not focusing only on those people who necessarily are prone to having a heart attack, but really that this could potentially treat everyone. Yeah, no, that's, I think that's what's um, uh, really, really very unique about LDL cholesterol 
Um, so if you've developed a heart attack, the number one thing to do to make sure you don't develop another one is to lower your LDL cholesterol as low as possible for as long as possible. Now, it turns out to prevent a first heart attack, the main thing to do is to keep your LDL as low as possible for as long as possible. So given those observations, you know, we have a, a phased approach to our clinical development for our lead product. So Andrew mentioned the profile, which is one-time infusion, 60, 60 minutes, let's say, intravenous infusion. You, you, know, you walk out and LDL goes down 60 to 70%, stays down. And we think this is going to be lifelong. And we can talk about durability in, maybe, in a few minutes. But that's the profile. LDL comes down, stays down. Which patients are we going to apply this therapy to first? Well, the first group is heterozygous FH. This is a genetic disease. Uh, they have high LDL, not because of their diet or lifestyle, but because of a DNA mutation. This is going to be a genetic treatment for their genetic disease. That's about a million people in the U.S., another million in Europe, 31 million globally. Okay. Um, that's the first group. Um, and the second group would be anybody who's had a heart attack in the United States or, or globally. And that's you know, the, the umbrella term is atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. That's about 22 million people in the United States, um, similar numbers in Europe, and then about a couple hundred million globally. So again, that group would stand to benefit from lifelong LDL lowering. Um, and so that's the second patient population. And then ultimately, with a sufficient safety database and, and efficacy database in, that, in those first two groups, Ali, we could see this medicine being given to patients to prevent a first heart attack before they have their heart attack. And that, you know, addressable market is literally most of the world. Um, so there's a, there's, a, there's a development, there's a stage development, a phase development from FH to ASCVD to prevention, um, all with successively larger addressable markets. A question we often get asked, Ali, is would patients really sign up for a gene editing therapy for you know, these more common disorders? Um, and I think, you know, I, I think a few things have happened recently. One, um, certainly as we've been reaching out to patients and, and clinicians over the last year, we've seen tremendous enthusiasm. Um, you know, patients are interested in this. Now, we're talking mainly to patients who surveys of, of patients with heterozygous FH. But I think what we're also seeing is that the idea of um, a lipid nanoparticle that carries mRNA in it um, being something that can be administered to millions of people or even billions of people now um, has become much more, much more clear, uh, in part because of COVID. Um, you know, because the COVID vaccines now are, are, have really uh, demonstrated the feasibility of manufacture, the feasibility of uh, administering these to large numbers of people, and that, that people, you know, a, that a new technology can have a dramatic impact um, on, on, on medicine. I think one of the exciting things also is that you guys are technology agnostic. 
So when you say that you found, you know, that base editing for this particular indication was, you know, the right technology to use, um, it doesn't mean that you'll be using base editing or any other one technology for the rest of your pipeline. So can you kind of talk about how you see the pipeline emerging in terms of, you know, using different technologies um, for each of your potential indications? Yeah, as, as we think about our, our pipeline, so the first program we talked about, Verb 101, um, uh, and targeting PCSK9 uh, and the, the clinical development in the way I mentioned. The second program targets a different um, cholesterol-raising gene called ANGPTL3, um, and, uh, and that's uh, a program that we, it's in development right now and uh, name, expect to name a lead candidate uh, by the end of this year for that program. And then um, we have prioritized additional targets, let's say programs three, four, and five. And um, for each of these targets, uh, we're going to take the same approach we took for the first two, which is we want to match the gene editing technology, uh, optimal gene editing technology for the target of interest. Um, and there's a number of considerations that go in, right, which is um, efficacy, so the guide screening that, that, um, that, that Andrew mentioned, uh, but also off-target profile. Um, and potency. Um, and so, um, uh, you know, when we started for with the first two targets, uh, we just had a couple of technologies, standard Cas9, CRISPR-Cas9, the molecular scissors, and then we had the emerging technology of base editing. And that's what we compared. And now in the last couple of years, there's been a proliferation of additional technologies like prime, like integrase-based approaches and so forth that now we, we should take a serious look at and try to see if, if any of those might be the best one for any given target. So um, that's the kind of um, uh, evaluation um, that we're, we're, we're in the process of doing right now. So, of course, technology is important, the modality you're using, and then um, you have to talk delivery, obviously, because that is sort of the next really important component. And you've done some pretty innovative things with your LMPs to, you know, as you target the liver. Um, to make them more susceptible and, and using Galnac as well, I believe. So would love to kind of just run through that and, and in terms of what you've done sort of to have a, a more innovative um, LMP. I think that I just want to give the history, um, and, um, and which is back in 2018, when we started the company, Ali, we already had decided on the format for the drug. Um, we, we wanted it to be mRNA, guide RNA, um, mRNA for the editor, the guide RNA tells the editor where to go. And then um, we explicitly said, we want to use non-viral delivery and, and lipid nanoparticles. Um, and the reason, and that back then, that was a little bit of a controversial decision um, because the best established was virus uh, for liver delivery. Uh, but we knew, or we, we thought, that virus would not scale, ultimately, to the millions of patients we would want to reach. Uh, and viral delivery, you know, has some drawbacks of inflammation and, and safety issues. And so, um, and so we, 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 you know, we settled on this LMP. Now, at the time, there was no, no clear, you know, uh, LMP that would automatically work for liver delivery, particularly in non-human primates, larger animal models. And so that's kind of where uh, Andrew stepped in in 2019, and he was handed this problem of, but look, we already know this is the format, you know, solve the problem for us. So, Andrew, what, 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 were we, what, what have you been able to accomplish over the last few years? Well, um, you know, the, 
exactly the sake said that the problem was, um, uh, you know, reasonably well understood. But um, in the case of liver delivery, actually, there had been some progress made over the previous decade or so in liver delivery. And so what we were able to do was to build upon a lot of that work uh, to get our lead program, Verve 101, um, which is a liver liver delivery uh, uh, of gene editing. I think the, 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 the nuances to that is that nobody had ever really demonstrated high-level in vivo editing. I mean, they had developed these lipid nanoparticles for siRNA. They had developed them for um, shorter mRNA delivery. Um, so I think what we had to do was really optimize the payloads and the uh, interaction with the lipid nanoparticle to be able to achieve high-level in vivo editing. And that's really, I think, the, the, the bar that we crossed in 2019-20 um, in monkeys. The interesting challenge that emerged um, as we headed into 2021 and we're thinking about our second program, ANGPTL3, there's a unique patient population for that therapy. Um, ANGPTL3, the monoclonal antibody from Regeneron, is approved now for homozygous FH. Homozygous FH is uh, uh, an even rare uh, form where patients completely lack or near, nearly completely lack the LDL receptor in their liver. So this created a real challenge for lipid nanoparticle delivery to the liver because that is actually the mechanism that, that, uh, by which lipid nanoparticles are taken up by the liver. So that drove us to really invest in uh, lipid nanoparticle discovery um, for the last three years or so. Uh, full spectrum, you know, lipid nanoparticle and some targeting strategies that we were working on. You, you mentioned one of them, which is a Galnac ligand uh, that we developed that we could incorporate into lipid nanoparticles. And this allowed us to get into the livers of these patients with homozygous FH because it's taken up by a different receptor, the ASGPR receptor in the liver. Uh, and so we could get taken up with high efficiency, deliver to the liver, uh, achieve uh, uh, base editing at a very high efficiency in, uh, in, in, in the liver and in monkeys that lack the LDL receptor. We actually created a homozygous FH monkey model. I'm not sure anyone's ever done that before to, to try to develop a, a new therapy. Uh, but we created a homozygous FH monkey model. We demonstrated that our LNPs could bypass the LDL receptor and get into them. And that's really, um, you know, I think a, 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 an unusual example of um, kind of forced innovation um, to solve a, a, a particularly challenging problem um, uh, of delivery to liver. What we've further found, though, is that in building that, pla that platform at, at Verve for lipid nanoparticles, we've developed a lot of lipid nanoparticles that, um, you know, we think are going to be useful for liver delivery. And we actually think this Galnac LNP that we've been working on We've shown now that it works in wild type monkeys as well, uh, and 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 you know we think it's going to be a useful uh, a useful delivery tool for for us for a, a number of our programs. I should mention that you know when we got started in eighteen, I think the only group that had shown high level editing um, using LNP delivery for in vivo liver uh, was Intellia Therapeutics. They had had some nice monkey data um, at, at doses of. LNP um, that were 
now we now know it's on the higher end, like three mix three milligrams per kilogram. And so that was the bar that we had to kind of you know, get to. And what we've been able to do over the last couple of years is um, get high efficiency liver editing uh, at at doses closer to half a mic per kg or one mic per kg. So several fold more potent uh, than 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 what the field had had previously demonstrated. So that puts us in very good shape for the first program, uh, Verb 101. And then for the second program, as Andrew mentioned, we have this Galnac LMP that's going to serve as the, the delivery vehicle. So, you know, all things and humans and animals aren't made equal, right? So when you think about LMP delivery and thinking about it, you know, with mice and humans and non-human primates, um, you know, we obviously see differences and that's maybe a, a broader comment on, on how we have to do medical research. We can't go directly into humans. But um, we got an interesting question on Twitter, uh, or at least I thought it was interesting. Um, there was a paper, it looks like in Nature Nanotechnology from the Dalman Lab. And um, something that I thought was interesting is they asked, you know, there's obviously a difference when you're looking at the LMP delivery between mice, between humans, between NHPs, but what about the differences between healthy and um, heterozygous FH patients? Is there, do you think that there's going to be any difference um, between those two groups? Yeah, so we, we, we were concerned about that question ourselves, you know, a few years ago. And so we, we've actually done a pretty extensive program to evaluate um, our LNPs in Verve 101 and actually also our Galnac LNPs in um, models of wild-type heterozygous FH and homozygous FH. And the, you know, the collective evidence from all those studies suggests that um, wild-type and heterozygous their liver physiology shares a lot in common. Homozygous is really a special case. If you totally lack the LDL receptor, then lipid nanoparticles will not be taken up very well. But in the wild type and the heterozygous, you have enough LDL receptor to still take up lipid nanoparticles efficiently and uh, deliver the RNA payload. You know, it's important to remember about, one of the, one of the nice things about base editing is that you really only need one molecule of a base editor to get into the nucleus to achieve your one base your one base pair change. Um, that's a little different than with Cas9, where you need to flood the cell with with Cas9 um, and make multiple cuts often in order to achieve your 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 therapeutic uh, you know uh, deletion or indel uh, with Cas9. So. We think that we're getting plenty of, of, uh, of base editor into, uh, into these uh, livers and heterozygous FH. It, it, in terms of uh, the wild type and the LDL receptor heterozygous deficient individuals, um, standard LMPs are going to work just fine. Um, it, it's really only an issue when you get into homozygous FH. Uh, and then, as, as Andrew mentioned, uh, we feel we have a solution for that uh, special case uh, with the Galmag Having said that, we do we do think that the Galnac LNPs are a nice um, option in that they work across the board in everybody, right? They work in wild type, they work in heterozygous, and they work in the homozygous. So, um, you know, it, it is a nice um, tool to have in your toolkit um, in the event that we do, you know, uh, that, that we do need it. So I don't know how much you can share on this, obviously, but would love to hear about um, anything else in your pipeline that you can discuss. I know a lot of times companies don't want to go too deep into their 
pipeline. Um, you know, so a lot of things are are kind of held secret until they need to be not held secret. But um, would love to know if there's anything you can share in terms of other programs that you guys are currently working on. Yeah, I think I'll start by just saying that you know, for our first two programs, we see those as kind of um, like kind of a pipeline in a product um, because of that that staged expansion of addressable markets that I mentioned. So for the first program, you know, you're going from a million people in the U.S. to 22 million to, you know, even much larger, ultimately for prevention. So that's the case for PCSK9 program, but also for ANGPTL3, you can get that same expansion starting from homozygous FH to heterozygous FH to um, ASCVD. So, um, so, so that's maybe point number one. I think um, in terms of uh, beyond the first two, uh, when we started the company, we had two other targets that we had prioritized, uh, both uh, liver genes, both lipoprotein genes. So, um, and one, and the, that's one of those is lipoprotein little a or LPA. And then the last is a gene called APOC3. Those two genes are still of interest to us. Um, and the reason these four genes, PCSK9, NGPTR3, LPA, and APOC3 were chosen, Ali, is because they represent three distinct risk pathways, um, three independent risk pathways. One that's focused on LDL, and that's the PCSK9 gene. Then one focused on triglyceride-rich lipoproteins, and that's uh, and LDL, and that's NGPTL3. And then the third being LPA, and that's the LPA gene. So ultimately, if you had a product against each of these three, um, you know, you would be able to solve much of, if not all of, atherosclerosis risk coming from cholesterol. That, so that's, so that's, that's kind of where we are with, with cholesterol and lipoprotein genes. Uh, first two products and then two more still kind of in research phase. Beyond these four, um, we are we have prioritized additional liver genes, um, where manipulating that gene in the liver um, can lead to cardiovascular health. Um, there are a set of genes like that, and the cardiovascular indications, um, you know, are maybe a bit broader than just atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. So, for example, like cardiomyopathy or other related thrombosis. Um, and so, and, and so there, there is another set of genes that we are thinking through and, pri and prioritizing. And I'll, I'll probably just leave it at that. Perfect. So, so some of the bears in, in gene editing, we'll talk about costs. Um, at ARC, we, we love talking about cost declines. We typically think of, you know, Wright's Law when we talk about cost decline. Um, so we talk about, you know, for every cumulative doubling units produced, costs are then going to fall by, you know, X or a constant percentage. So, you know, obviously we don't need to do specific calculations right now. That's what I'm for <laughs> behind the scenes. But what, what are your thoughts on like how quickly costs can potentially decline for, for gene editing and, and just the idea of these therapies becoming more and more quantified? Yeah, this is a very important um, topic. And I think um, I'll just start with a couple of points and then let Andrew add in as well. I think when people think about gene editing or gene therapy, they're immediately thinking uh, rare disease pricing and um, millions of dollars a dose. Um, and that's not going to be our model uh, because we ultimately want to reach millions of patients. 
uh, with with heart attack. Um, and so if it's not going to be millions of dollars a dose, then what is it? Well, when we started the company a few years ago, we really didn't have a great sense of could we get the cost of goods low enough to bring this to large patient populations. And um, But I mentioned we'd already decided on that format of mRNA, guide RNA, and LMP. Well, the last two years, COVID has changed this whole um, calculus on cost because the COVID mRNA vaccines look just like our drug. And we know that COVID mRNA vaccines can be made very cost effectively, a couple of dollars a dose. Now, that's for 100 micrograms. We're going to be giving, let's say, you know, milligram doses, so 35 milligrams, for example, for a 70 kilogram male or female. So, um, but even if you just do that extrapolation from 100 micrograms, a dollar to 35 milligrams, you're still now in a very cost effective cost of goods. Um, and so we are very comfortable going forward that, that we're going to be able to make this stuff and price this in a way that is accessible uh, to lots of people. The only thing I'd add is I think, Ali, when a lot of people talk about the, the, you know, your, your kind of bare thesis on gene, gene editing, they're thinking about um, ex vivo therapies. They're thinking about cell therapies. Um, these look very, very different. Uh, from a manufacturing standpoint and a cost standpoint. So I think at, at the end of the day, it really comes down to, as, as Say said, it, it's really matching your, your, your product to your, 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 your target product profile. And so that was a, you know, an, an important part of our decision-making to focus on this kind of format um, was ultimately that we wanted this to be a cost-effective therapy for millions of people. Um, and so that's been um, kind of front and center of, of, from the beginning of the development. And, you know, we, we invest a lot of effort in, um, on the product development side on ensuring that we can meet that vision of, of a cost-effective therapy. I will say selfishly, I'm working right now on a cost-decline model um, for gene editing. So so always great to hear your perspective about that because um, it, it's definitely a challenge <laughs> figuring out all the costs that actually go into it including just, you know, the scientist's time. And then there's obviously manufacturing. There's obviously cost of goods. There's obviously, you know, there's so many different costs that go into it that, you know, are, are maybe not everyone thinks about. Um, and so to get this final therapy. So it's interesting to hear your perspective on the cost for sure. Yeah, I mean, this will ultimately end up being an infusion, our product, yeah. a one-time infusion over 60 minutes. And, and it's a lipid nanoparticle, you know, with mRNA and guide RNA. And um, it's pretty clear that this stuff can be made um, at scale, um, very cost effectively. And you know, we, we we've selected uh, indications um, that where the patient populations are large enough that you will need this scale. You know, it's not a disease that affects a thousand people, and so there's no way you can envision scale. Um, this is a disease that affects ten percent of the world, um, and so. Uh, I think that may be a particular advantage kind of in our situation. And we have this wonderful roadmap to scale with COVID uh, vaccines uh, and the manufacturing capacity for mRNA, guide RNA, and 
um, LNP is the capacity has just you know ballooned in the last two years. Of course. Yes, and and mentioning that, I know we got the question all the time: What are you most excited for mRNA technologies? Vaccines, obviously, we've seen what they can do, and we've seen you know their potential. Uh, but you know there are certain reasons why you know an mRNA vaccine was particularly positive for COVID. Um, you know, as SARS-CoV-2 is an RNA virus. But I think one of the most interesting and potential, you know, use cases is really through gene editing. And what it's done is that so many pharmaceutical companies and others have created these, you know, factories to produce mRNA and LMPs. And so that has really driven the cost to go down. So I think that's a really exciting premise for gene editing in general. So... Maybe to, to shift gears a little bit, I, I think we can never talk about gene editing without thinking about some of the hurdles um, that, you know, we're going to have to either go through or some of the ones that we've already kind of gone through. And so one of them is going to be obviously regulatory um, and some of those challenges that are going to come with, you know, regulators seeing sort of a new potential class of therapies um, although, you know, they've obviously seen it before and, and you and other companies are already engaged with the FDA, but curious how you think about sort of the regulatory pathway and also some of the issues with um, intellectual property as well. Yeah, I think, um, you know, Ali, there's no question with a new technology, you have a certain um, burden to, you know, collaborate with the agency on um, educating them and also understanding how they're thinking about um, some of the challenges and working with them. Um, and I think that that's where we are. That's where the field is. Um, we've had a very positive uh, experience interacting with both the FDA and, and uh, European regulators. Um, I think at the end of the day, uh, people recognize the unmet need. They recognize that this is a, a, a transformative uh, therapy. And so the question is really, um, how do we collectively um, work to, to ensure that there's really high quality science behind them and that we understand um, the mechanism and we understand all of the potential safety uh, uh, concerns on the CMC side, on the off-target side, on the toxicology side. And that's really what we've done. Um, I, I wouldn't say there's any single, um, you know, kind of magic bullet to that approach. It's really just being, I think, open-minded and collaborative and uh, working through all of the questions that agencies have, um, you know, and, 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 and addressing them. Andrew, do you want to walk um, Ali through um, some of those IND enabling studies that we've done to kind of, that'll, that'll be going into the, um, the, the package um, uh, sure. for the yeah. record for submissions this year? Yeah. So, um, you, you know, there's uh, two key aspects of the GLP talks package. One is um, our, our extensive non-human primate data and, and a GLP extension of that, uh, so demonstrating uh, safety in, in non-human primate. Um, the second is a, a similar toxicology study in a mouse disease model, so in heterozygous FH disease model. So those, those are the two core portions of the, the tox package. Off-target is um, a, you know, a critical area for us. We've been very um, uh, transparent um, with the agencies and, and actually with the public as well about uh, a lot of the off-target data we've been generating at Verve, which has shown uh, that we have exquisite uh, specificity. So, you know, when we look 
at the single uh, uh, site that we in PCSK9 that we want to edit, we see very high efficiency editing, and it's a very predictable edit. So we don't see a lot of uh, unpredictable changes at the on-target site. And then the next step is to look at all the other sites in the genome where editing might occur. So we've developed panels of you know, more than 3,000 such potential off-target sites around the genome. And these are sites that maybe look a little bit like our on-target site in PCSK9, or for some other reason might be at increased risk of, of off-target editing. And we look at all those sites, and we've shown that we do not see we do not see off-target editing at any of those sites in the liver. So we've gone through and built a very substantial package on the off-target side uh, for regulators, addressing each of the questions around guide-dependent editing, guide-independent editing, um, uh, as well as the, the propensity to develop structural variants that you know have been seen with uh, other nucleases like Cas9. The other thing I should add is that, you know, Ali, when you do a, a, an infusion into the bloodstream of the drug, the drug is uh, going to go to the liver. Uh, almost all of it goes to the liver, but it is systemically infused. So there's a possibility the drug could go to other organs and there could be editing happening in other organs, off-target editing. So um, here, it's been a very productive discussion with, with the FDA where they guided us to evaluate off-target um, editing, uh, evaluate for off-target editing in tissues uh, where there might be biodistribution of the drug. So first, check the biodistribution, and then second, evaluate for off-target editing potentially in those other tissues. And that's exactly what we've done. We've shown, uh, we've released data on the biodistribution of our drug when it's infused into monkeys, and it goes to liver, but also um, two other tissues, the spleen and the adrenal gland. And then our off-target analyses have now been in liver cells treated with drug, but also in primary human splenic cells treated with drug, as well as primary adrenal cells treated with drug. Um, and so that's a, another facet of, of off-target analysis in, in vivo, for in vivo liver. Obviously, we cannot have a podcast without discussing off-target editing. I don't think it will. I don't think it will ever happen. And obviously, that's that's one of the the largest challenges, I think, um, you know, just uncertainty and nervousness around it. And I think, you know, going back to something you said at the beginning of the podcast, these are non-viral delivery vectors. And so a lot of the sort of off-target edits or, or sort of safety challenges that we've heard of from, from others has, has been more focused on, on viral delivery. Um, so it's important just to make that distinction, I think. Um, and I, I don't know if you wanted to add anything to that, say, for Andrew. I think that, you know, there, as I mentioned earlier, we made an explicit decision to move away from virus, mainly for some of the reasons that you meant that we've talked about, which is um, the inflammatory reaction, the liver function tests that are that can rise and then stay elevated over time. Um, and then the, the durability. And actually, this might be a good time to talk about durability, because that's um, another reason, uh, another particular advantage, I think, of gene editing versus, um, let's say, gene viral gene therapy where there have been some issues around um, around uh, durability based on immune reactions, for example, that take away the, the, the protein that's being expressed um, or the vector that's being expressed. So um, the, reason, um, well, the reason the gene editing is um, likely to be durable for the lifetime of the animal, um, at least based on 
uh, the emerging data, is that um, when you go in and, and make the edit, um, uh, let's say in liver cells, um, that edit edit is um, is being generated in mature hepatocytes. And the liver, for example, does turn over. So every couple of hundred days in monkeys and humans, um, you have a whole new set of liver cells than what you had before. So the liver, entire liver turns over. Now, um, what is the source of that turnover? Um, it turns out the source of that turnover are mature hepatocytes. So when we edit, when we come in with a, a, you know, our therapy, for example, and edit at time zero, um, you're editing all the mature hepatocytes. I mentioned we have like 100% efficiency, like all the hepatocytes. So when those hepatocytes divide to give rise to the next generation of hepatocytes, the edit is carried, carried forward. So that's why there's, there's likely to be durability for the lifetime of the animal. Now, what, what evidence do we have for that? Well, there's been data by Intellia, for example, with monkeys out to two to three years um, after editing. The editing is maintained. We have data out to almost year and a half, 18 months. Um, and, um, and then in some forced regeneration experiments that we've, we and others have done um, in mice, um, the, uh, there's, there's, there's a very strong durability. So um, I think this whole um, um, uh, durability question, the answer is going to be very different for gene editing as compared to gene therapy. Especially gene editing in the liver. Um, because of that turnover feature, as you take, just walk through. Um, that, that may not, you know, we may not see the same level of durability in other tissues because stem cells may play a different role in those, in, in, in turnover of those other tissues. But in in the liver, we're, we're pretty confident this is going to be a lifetime therapy. Yeah, that, that's really good context. I think a lot of people forget that gene therapy and gene editing are not the same thing. So um, that's really good context for people. So thanks for walking us through that. And, and obviously, I think durability on all of these modalities is, is still you know somewhat of a question. But thanks for walking us through sort of how you guys think about it and, and the possibilities for that specific therapy, which is pretty impressive and, and interesting and we'll certainly be watching. Um, but I, I wanted to pivot a little bit just because this is art and our focus is obviously on disruptive innovation. So wanted to ask if you had any thoughts or if you guys are implementing anything to sort of help with this, which is how do you further reduce time to market for new therapies? So, you know, what do you think it will be that will help us get to market even quicker? Um, you know, at ARC, we focused on things like better sequencing technology, um, neural network-based algorithms, you know, like AlphaFold that can predict protein folding um, or things like CRISPR even. Um, so we published a lot about this in our Big Ideas deck actually from 2020, um, just on the intersection of AI, CRISPR, next generation sequencing, and how that really can improve time to market and also trial phase failure reductions. Um, we estimate by 25% each. But I'd love to hear your thoughts on if Verve is doing anything to get to the clinic faster, reduce failure rates, and if not, sort of how you think Verve can, you know, further improve and, and, and add new modalities or new technology to the, to the mix in order to help with that. Yeah, I think um, our um, secret sauce, I think, is a lot less sophisticated than AI, um, and it's just focus. Um, you know, we started... Um, 
in 18 with a laser-like focus on a couple of targets. We knew what we wanted to do um, and which organ we wanted to do it in. We had that format, and then we had to bring all the pieces together. And where there were no pieces, we had to, in a couple of cases, invent or discover ourselves. Uh, and the entire team now of 130 people at Verb is focused on getting the, the first drug to patients. And in, and we fully expect this year to dose our first patient in the second half of this year. So it's really like three and a half years for a brand new treatment modality. Um, and so um, a lot has gone into this, um, but I would say the biggest, one of the biggest drivers has been that focus uh, on product development. Yeah, I think, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of look to the future, Ali, um, and into, the, into clinical development. I think a um, few things. One, uh, we're, we're targeting a, a, a gene and a pathway that's very well understood with excellent biomarkers. So as we go through our clinical development, we're not flying blind. We're, we, we, we know exactly how much PCSK9 reduction we need to achieve in our patients to achieve a clinical benefit. So that's going to allow us to move much more quickly from phase one to phase two and three than, say, a therapy uh, where the, uh, the amount of editing that you need to achieve to achieve a therapeutic effect is unknown or where you can't monitor that very easily. So we have a, a you know, by virtue of, of the kind of careful thought that's gone into the, the target, I think that's going to let us move with a higher degree of confidence and a higher probability of success through phase one and into phase two. And then thinking about phase three, uh, you know, a couple important points that I think are gonna be really helpful to us in terms of getting regulatory approval quickly and getting to market. One, we our, our clinical endpoint is LDL lowering. So this is the clinical endpoint for heterozygous FH patient. Every, every drug approved for heterozygous FH has been approved based on LDL lowering endpoint. And that's an endpoint that you can you can hit that endpoint with 80 patients. You don't need large numbers of, of patients to hit that endpoint. Now, of course, our clinical development will be with many more patients than that, but that's, that's to build the safety database. Our, our efficacy endpoints are, are very high probability um, endpoints and very well, very well understood and very well characterized. So I think uh, you know, there's a number of aspects of our clinical development that uh, we think are going to make it or very efficient clinical development. And then on the operational side, you know, I think we can talk about this more in the future, but we certainly are implementing a lot of the uh, innovations in clinical operational um, efficiencies around remote monitoring and um, you know, uh, 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 hybrid, hybrid uh, structure, particularly as we look to some of the long-term follow-up that we're gonna be doing. So we're gonna be dosing people once uh, and then following them uh, to look at durability as well as safety. And so we're looking at, um, at ways we can do that very efficiently in a modern fashion that is uh, enabled by technology. And also even just in the lab. I mean, um, you know, I, I've been lucky enough to visit it. And I, I think, you know, I would say that it's, it's very impressive in terms of the amount of technology you have in the lab, in terms of automation, um, you know, being able to monitor certain things at home instead of, you know, running back to the lab, um, robotics, 
Um, so, so I think there's a lot of um, automation that goes in there, which is very helpful for sort of the, I guess, the, the preclinical um, aspect. So um, I think that's really sort of one of one of the unique characterizations that helps um, with reducing costs eventually <laughs> as they're you know expensive at the beginning um, but then also helps with with getting things to to clinic quicker which then helps with commercialization of course um, so so a funny question I I opened this up to Twitter and I asked for questions on Twitter and I actually knew this question would come up um, and was thinking about it myself uh, but the question was sake you're very active on Twitter um, and you engage a lot on Twitter. And I, I think the, the question was something about, do you think that this is you know, a really interesting and important way for you to engage with the community? Um, Andrew is also active on Twitter, by the way. So just want to highlight that. <laughs> one fiftieth the followers. So. <laughs> um, but but maybe, maybe not after this, Andrew, so you never know. Um, but but I, I, I think the question was, like, do you find this a, a really interesting way to kind of interact with, with the community at large? And I think someone even referenced kind of like, is this, you know, helpful from an IR perspective? Um, and, and I know, you know, ARP is certainly active on Twitter as well. And, and I find it really helpful um, when people make comments or link articles. Um, so just curious on, on your thoughts sort of the... In the yeah, I mean, I, I love Twitter. Um, I think um, I've been on. It sounds like I think it's my tenth, like my the tenth anniversary of kind of being on Twitter this year. So I started in 2012, and I learn something every day, uh, multiple things. Um, and I think the key to you know to making effective use of Twitter is you know curating your feed, uh, avoiding you know distractions like politics, for example. Um, and and really staying laser focused on um, delivering. Um, inf- I, 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 I find that what people want from me is new information. Um, and so when I was an academic, I enjoyed kind of talking about the research we were doing, the new findings, trying to explain it to a general audience. And then having made the transition now to the company, I'm giving people kind of a window into what it is like to build something from the ground up. You know, um, in in terms of having a certain focus, a certain mission, um, bringing the team together, and then you know we're executing. And so, um, and that execution involves the science, but it's also some of the business stuff. We went through the IPO, we went you know raise capital, and all, all those things, and and even even some of the day to day stuff. Like you know we've had to you know do all of this work over the last two years, three and a half, two and a half years during the pandemic, and very proud of the fact that, you know, we've had our um, employees, uh, you know, come in, um, the, the lab-based employees, the whole pandemic. And we've been doing surveillance testing two to three times a week the whole time. Um, and I put out some information recently on our testing results, you know, and I, I thought this was a nice window into kind of how, you know, a biotech in, in Boston has, exper- has experienced the pandemic. We did our testing uh, from you know June July 30 July 1 sorry 2020 is when we started and then to December 31st of last year so 18 months we had done 4300 tests uh, PCR tests surveillance tests and we had three positives of the 4300 so really very reflective I think of how great our <laughs> our employees take care of themselves in terms of 
you know, their behaviors. Um, and so that was great. And then, um, it, but it was, it was something we put, put together to, you know, make the workplace safe, safer. And then we had January, the first week with Omicron, and we had the first 140 tests the first week in January, we had 14 positives. Um, and then the second week was four, the third week was one, and then this last week was zero. So, you know, we, ex we experienced what, you know, the rest of the world is experiencing. But um, anyway, getting back to Twitter, uh, sharing all of this, uh, people love new information and they respond to it. And then lastly, I would say is I love engaging. Um, you have to pick the people to engage with. There's a lot of there's a lot of noise in the system, but when you do pick the right people to engage with, you know you learn, they learn, and uh, there can be very mutual uh, beneficial. Andrew, nothing to add on Twitter. <laughs> um, no, no, I think Sake is Sake is the master, so uh, I have nothing to add. Got it. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree. I think having a curated feed and then just, you know, learning from each other is really amazing. I know some, I was thinking of the posts that have stuck out for me, but I know like even when a journal article comes out or if, you know, Verve has put something out that's new, it's it's so easy to go on Twitter and, and see that you've already posted about it. And not only have you posted about it, but you typically then like explain what that article is saying so that, you know, if someone doesn't have a scientific background, they may be able to digest it a little bit better. So um, I think it's helpful, <laughs> but everyone has their, their own, you know, perspective on social media. But, um, you know, I definitely thank you for it. I also remember, I was thinking of the post that stuck out the most and it was probably, I think it was like the Thanksgiving. Um, I think you had posted like a picture of all the food. So I don't know why. Maybe I was hungry that day. Well, that's, that's actually one of the one of the other lessons uh, besides people crave information. Um, and, you know, they're usually following you for a very specific thing. So if you make sure you, whatever your posts are, like 80% of my posts are about the company, LDL, atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, you know. But then they also like to see some a little bit of the personal side, you know, so... Um, I do, you know, post things like dosa and you know, things that I, I like from my background, food. But the second thing people like is we're, we're a very visual species. So people like images. And um, that's an important lesson. And Andrew is amazing at actually developing images for our data, uh, for slides. And, and it, it's really critical that you are able to convey information not through text, but actually through um, images. And that's one of the things I learned in the 10 years on Twitter. Andrew, I'm now curious, how have you become a master at developing images? Is it, are these PowerPoint images that you're talking about or, or data? Well, you know, it, it, it's, it's data representation. It's, it's communicating science in a, in a way that really gets at the, the key message that, that people are, 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 are looking to understand from the data. Often people have a lot of data and it's kind of just, you know, it's, it's there's extraneous stuff on the slide. A lot of it's just being very uh, rigorous about editing yourself down. I'm going to embarrass Andrew. But, I mean, he is amazing at putting pen to paper and um, just creating beautiful um, representations of the data generated by the people. Well, you know, when you're building a company, one of the things that you learn is you have to change your role over time. And, you know, but at the early days and honestly, until fairly recently, you know, Sake and I, you know, made the vast majority of the slides for, for Verve um, ourselves. And, 
you know, you know, we're, we've, we're building a team now, and and so we have, uh, uh, you know, building strength across across the organization. But you really do have to be somebody who is, um, you know, you you gotta you gotta do it yourself sometimes. So I definitely am always working on data visualization. So now I know I'm, you know, Andrew, watch out because if I ever have questions now, I'm gonna be like. All right, well, found the master. So that's uh, that's a good tidbit to know. And obviously, Verb's slides are always um, really digestible and, and, and good to understand. So now we know the master behind it. Another another question on Twitter actually also was about any funny or early stories at Verb. So I guess we kind of opened that Pandora's box. So I'm not sure if there's anything else you wanted to share or highlight there. But um, I don't know if there's any early funny stories, Andrew. I don't well, we always we always joke with our you know the the our other the other Andrew um, the, the the third uh, uh, portion of our, our early management team we've of course grown it recently with the addition of Allison Dorval our CFO but um, you know in the spirit of everybody having to do everything we famously have moved uh, as a company like four times in, in four years because uh, we keep outgrowing our space and. Andrew keeps telling us, you know, oh, we, we just need this space. And Sake and I keep looking at it going, you know, bigger, 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 bigger. Um, but famously, when we moved into one of our first spaces, uh, Andrew... Well, that was actually, it was actually in 26 Lansdowne Street yeah. where we sublet it from Bean. From Bean, right. yeah. We had to... Uh, our, our COO was, was there all night assembling all of our chairs and all of our desks for the company uh, because, you know, th- that's what you do when, when you're building a company, so... Wow, that's amazing. Okay, well, you know, I will just, I'll give you the opportunity. Have I missed anything? Is there anything you want to highlight about Verve before we, we sign off? Um, no, I, I just, just highlight that, look, it, it's all about um, solving this disease and, um, and the solution. When I look uh, back, um, you know, when we started, it was very clear. Um, we had conviction that the solution to this problem is um, a one and done to lower IDL. Um, and it's just been very satisfying to um, to develop um, that product over a relatively short period of time. And then this is the key year for the company. We're really going to be able to take this to patients uh, with disease and and hopefully prove efficacy and and, uh, and then um, and then uh, expand from there. So um, really amazing journey and very grateful to Andrew and the rest of the team uh, to be able to, to do this. And, um, and thanks for uh, talking to us. Of course. Well, thanks so much, you guys, for joining. Um, I know we'll hear a lot more from you guys on Twitter, at conferences. Um, and so, yeah, thanks for joining and, and for the work that you're doing and hope to talk to you guys soon. Thank you, Allie. Thank you, Allie. ARC believes that the information presented is accurate and was obtained from sources that ARC believes to be reliable. However, ARC does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any information, and such information may be subject to change without notice from ARC. Historical results are not indications of future results. Certain of the statements contained in this podcast may be statements of future expectations and other forward-looking statements that are based on ARC's current views and assumptions and involve known and unknown risks and uncertainties that could cause actual results, performance, or events to differ materially from those expressed or implied in such statements.